Will you pray with me again? Lord, it's hard for us even to imagine how a thousand years could go by and just seem like a moment. We are so bound by time and its effects, but we praise you and look forward to that day where we will be with you and where millennia will, will pass as if we've just been sitting there chatting for a while. And your glory and your mercy and your grace and your love will still be so amazing and so new and so real to us. We thank you so much for that hope that we have through Jesus. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. We deserve the cross. We deserve the grave. We deserve eternal punishment and separation from you. And yet in Christ, you show us your love, your forgiveness, and your goodness. We are not worthy. Lord, we praise you for your grace. We thank you that you're here that you hear our prayers, that you care for us, and that you desire for us to come to you with our thoughts, our requests, and our burdens. And Lord, you take them on yourself, and you help us. Thank you for being able to pray together to you this morning. Lord, we pray this morning for the country of Israel. Lord, even though they in general, the country of Israel and the Jewish people hold to the Old Testament and even call on you by name, there are so many that have missed the truth of what the Old Testament was pointing to. They deny that Jesus was the Messiah that they long for, and because of that, they are far from you. So Lord, we ask that you would make the word come alive in many Jewish people and that you would help them to see the sacrifice and the suffering of Isaiah 53 as being realized in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for the safety of those people from political and racially motivated enemies that surround the country of Israel. Lord, will you give wisdom and mercy and long-suffering to the government of Israel? We pray for Benjamin Netanyahu, May he come to know you as his true Lord through the work of Christ on the cross. We ask that the hearts and minds of the people of Israel would turn to you. And those that are true believers who live there, Lord, we ask that they would be a powerful witness for you. Lord, we also thank you for the freedoms that we enjoy as we live in this country. Lord, help us not to become too embroiled in the latest controversy that we forget your goodness to us. We are all very blessed to live in this country, in this state, and in this area. So we thank you. We ask that you would work through our leaders here. We pray for President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris. Help them to be able to see the true needs of the people of our country and to be motivated to act out of humility and compassion. Father, if they don't know you, I hope that maybe even today on Easter, they would be confronted with the truth 
and the power of your resurrection and that they would believe. Help us who call you Lord to know how to properly live in submission to the authorities that you have seen fit to place over us. And Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you as a body this morning. And Father, we praise you for faithful churches throughout our country and again throughout our local area. Lord, this morning we think of Lake Taps Community Church and Pastor Tim Heath. We thank you for his years of service and Lord, we pray for him and his wife and his family and the congregation as just recently the cancer that he has been battling has, has come back. So we pray for wisdom for the doctors as they treat him. We ask that his body would respond to those treatments. We ask that you would have mercy on him. Lord, we pray for the congregation of Lake Taps. We hope that uh, this morning and throughout the coming days that they would uh, relish the time that they have to come together and to worship you. We ask that they would support one another that they would love one another, that they would reach out to friends and family and be faithful to share the gospel and that you would grow their congregation. Lord, we pray for the elder team that they would lead wisely, that you would help them as they make hard decisions to be in your word, to find wisdom from your word, to be in prayer. And Lord, we ask that that you would do mighty things through that church. Lord, the mission of Lake Taps Community Church is that they would be committed to honoring you by introducing people to Jesus Christ. And we hope that they would be successful in that mission through the work of the Spirit in their lives. And Lord, we turn our eyes to our own congregation, and we know that there are many needs. We pray that you will Help us to be faithful to each other. Help us to look out, not just for ourselves, but for the needs of others, and to put them ahead of even the things that, that we desire for ourselves. Lord, help us to be selfless as we serve each other, not to bring glory to ourselves, but to bring glory to you. And Lord, we think of some of the, the needs of our congregation. We pray for Susan Carter's mom who, who fell this last week and fractured her pelvis. Lord, will you heal her? Will you help her? Will you give comfort to Susan and her family as they try their best to support her? Lord, we think of the Williams family as they are taking care of Craig's mother now. Um, in their home. Will you help that to go well? Will you help them to cherish this time, even though it's difficult? Lord, we continue to pray for Cynthia Mordhorse. We ask that you would give her strength and comfort and peace this morning. We're so thankful for her testimony of love to you and devotion to her family. And we ask that you would continue to give her strength. Lord, we think of Pat Thatcher and are thankful for the progress that he's making and Hopefully, uh, hopefully coming home soon. Continue to be with Ellen. Continue to give her strength and comfort. And Lord, for all the other needs that, uh, that we don't know of or 
aren't mentioning this morning, we just ask that you would work, that you would show your power through the lives of your people here. Lord, keep us faithful to be witnessing to neighbors, to loved ones, to those who, who need to know the power of your resurrection that we're talking about this morning. Lord, we thank you again for the chance to, to gather and to worship, to sing, to pray. Lord, we're thankful for Pastor Jeff and the preparation of this morning's message, and we ask that you would speak to us through the book of Jonah. Will you prepare our hearts and our minds? We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, good morning. He has risen. Oh, I love those words. Missed it last year. So, so thankful for this year to gather together as the body of Christ on Easter morning. And so something a little different this morning, we're going to look at an unfamiliar passage for an Easter morning. We're going to be in Jonah chapter two. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Jonah chapter two. Hopefully it all makes sense as we walk through this passage here this morning. As you're turning there, I heard a story this week of a little girl who was talking uh, with her teacher in a classroom about whales. And the teacher said in the class that it was physically impossible for a whale to swallow a human because even though it was a very large mammal, that a throat, the, the teacher said, was very small. And the girl stated in the class that Jonah was swallowed by a whale. Irritated, the teacher reiterated that the whale could not swallow a human. It was physically impossible. And the little girl said, well, when I get to heaven, I'll ask Jonah. And the teacher said, what if Jonah went to hell? And the little girl said, well, then you ask him. <laughs> Wasn't sure how I, what reaction I would get off that. This could be my last time preaching. <clears throat> There's been a lot of attention given to this fish in Jonah 2 over the years. Many discount this story as just fable. Because of those same issues, it's too incredible to be true. At the heart of the objections is the unwillingness to admit the possibility of the miraculous. There have been many studies to see if there was possible for a man to be swallowed by a fish, even a whale. In the early 20th century, it was argued that a sperm whale could not do this, that it had trouble swallowing even an orange, let alone a man. But since then, uh, more scientists have identified subspecies of sperm whales that have throats large enough to swallow large, or, or excuse me, small houses. So the most famous story that I came across, the answers if it's possible, was the episode of the whaling ship, the Star of the East, which spotted a large sperm whale in February of 1891. When they spotted it, harpoon boats were launched in one capsized with two men on board who were then lost. In time, the whale they were searching was found and killed and drawn to the ship where it was secured and soon it was cut open. And what did they find? But one of the missing sailors, James Bartley, who was unconscious but alive inside this whale. So, it seemed impossible that it could happen, but perhaps Jonah 2 could actually happen. The unbelievable is now believable. As we've, we've already stated here this morning, our calendars today tell us that today is Easter. 
Resurrection Sunday. And maybe you're here for the first time in church in a long time or the first time ever. And I want you to know you're welcome here. You're welcome here every Sunday. But I want to be honest with you as we begin. We're not here celebrating the fact that winter is now over. We're not here to celebrate that spring has come, although that's enjoyable. We're not here because we have flowers that are blossoming and grass that is growing that we have to mow, or the the fact that we can soon have a meal outside. That's not why we are gathered this morning. We are here this morning as Christians because we believe that Jesus Christ was literally and physically resurrected from the dead. We believe it. We don't think it's an idle tale. We don't think it's fables, some analogy. We believe Jesus Christ was physically and literally murdered, killed on Friday, and that he was in the grave from that afternoon until Sunday morning. And on that Sunday morning, he physically resurrected from the grave. He was dead, and he came back to life. We believe that. We have embraced that, and we understand there's big implications because of that. And it's important for us as a church to defend the the validity of the text of Scripture. And if we won't do it, no one else will. Jesus was raised from the dead over 2,000 years ago, and God performed miracles in the days of Jonah. We believe it and we preach it. The question is, do you believe it? That's the question of the hour. Do you believe that Jesus is alive? Do you believe the Bible is true? This answer to the question will change your life. It will revolutionize your life. And you may not have heard Jonah 2 preached on Easter morning. Hopefully, as we walk through the text, you'll see why this chapter of the Bible is helpful for us to understand all that Christ did for us on the cross on Friday and what accomplished for us on Resurrection Sunday. So here's the main idea from Jonah chapter 2. Here's the main thrust, what I want to argue here in this sermon. In his mercy, God has determined to save those whom he wills and to use those whom he saves for his glory. And we will see that, Lord willing, in Jonah 2. God orchestrated a circumstance in history to teach Jonah something that he desperately needed to know. And we see, as we look backwards, that the most important lessons we have learned in life are the result of God's severe mercies in our life. As we find out, God has determined, he has determined that Nineveh will be evangelized. And he has set his grace upon the Ninevites, and his heart beats with love and pity for them. And God won't relent until his servant, Jonah, is rescued and turns to go and preach to Nineveh. Jonah is God's chosen instrument to bring the Ninevites to repentance. God has a scandalous mercy upon his servant Jonah before Jonah witnesses the same God having a scandalous mercy upon his enemies. But God will bring Jonah through hell before he's ready to preach to Nineveh, and that's what we'll see here in Jonah chapter 2. So two points as we walk through this passage. First, a merciful wrath. Second, a gracious salvation. A merciful wrath, a gracious, gracious salvation. So first, a merciful wrath. The psalmist in Psalm 119.67 wrote, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. This very well could be written all over the experience of Jonah in this book. The instrument that God uses in his life is suffering. If you remember last week in chapter 1, the the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the prophet of the Lord, to go and call against the city of Nineveh to repent, but Jonah doesn't want to go. 
He, he rebels against God's word and he runs the other way. He hops on a boat to Tarshish, the opposite direction of Nineveh, but God doesn't let him go. He pursues him. And the storm then comes that God brings. God brings a storm to, to rage against the boat. And the only way now to survive for the mariners on the boat is to toss Jonah overboard. And that's what they do. And last week we stopped at verse 16 of chapter 1. So look at verse 17, the last verse of chapter 1. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. We read, the fish was sent there by God to swallow up Jonah. Now the modern listener has rejected the book of Jonah as fiction or parable of some sort because I mean, it seems impossible that a large fish can swallow a man. We've already talked about that. Friends, if you come to the Bible with an already determined presupposition that the supernatural is impossible, then you'll miss God. God doesn't fit into your box. We can go into great detail of the time of trying to convince you of the fish, but the narrative, what he's trying to convey here, the author, is really not about the fish at all. Friends, if we only focus on the great fish we will lose sight of the great God who's the star of the story. The subject in the sentence of verse 17 is not the great fish, but our great God. So our attention needs to be on him and what he's going to do in this story, not the fish. And what we see in chapter 1 into chapter 2 is Jonah's descending. He, he, he goes down to, to Joppa, down into the ship, down into the depths of, of the water now but not until he was all the way down, finally stripped of his own self-sufficiency that salvation was made possible for Jonah. There was a hidden flaw in Jonah that wouldn't be dealt with when his life was going fine. It would only come to the surface when life wasn't going fine. Jonah needed to be brought low to be lifted up. The world itself has seen this to be true. We hear testimonies of those that are not part of the church to see this in their own lives. One is in, in 2008, J.K. Rowling was invited to speak at Harvard's commencement. And in that speech, she described a point in her life when she had failed in epic levels. She had a short-lived marriage. She was jobless. She was a single parent, as poor as possible in modern Britain without being homeless. And when she reached the very bottom, she realized that she needed to direct all of her energy into finishing the work that mattered most to her. She would say that if she had succeeded at anything else, she might not have found the determination to succeed at the one thing that she was gifted at, which was writing. She said that she built her success a number of failures. Well, we've seen the same example in the scriptures, the same pattern in the Old Testament, right? With Jacob and Abraham and Joseph and David and Elijah. And then we come to the New Testament, we see with Peter, right? They all become spiritual leaders through failure, through suffering. And as often said, you never realize that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. You must lose your life to find it. And what we come here in the chapter two is Jonah is losing his life. The fish is in fact hell for Jonah. He had traversed the agony and death and come to this torment prepared by God to enforce the total separation that, from him and his God. Jonah's death in the belly of the fish prefigures the death, the days of death that Jesus Christ would experience in the grave after his crucifixion for sins. Oh, well, we turn to chapter two and he says in verse one, 
Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. And this prayer here by Jonah is one of the great prayers in the Bible. Verse 2, I cried out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves, all your billows passed over me. You know, when God calls Jonah on a mission to go to Nineveh, he doesn't pray. When, when he's fleeing Joppa on a boat, he doesn't pray. When the storm reaches the boat and, reach, and it just brings havoc and things are falling apart, Jonah doesn't pray. When the captain comes to him to call out to his God, Jonah doesn't pray. But as Jonah sinks to the water's floor, he prays. Disobedience led to prayerlessness. Prayerlessness led to foolishness and sin. And foolishness and sin led to trouble. Friends, it's a terrible thing to keep running from God and to succumb to sin. And if you're running and struggling with, from, from God and, and struggling with sin, friends, you need to run to the church, not from it. It's tragic. I've seen it too many times over the years. People continuing to run from God and God's people. And as a church family, we want to follow God and we want to help others follow God. Our job isn't to sit in judgment of you with arms crossed, but to help you know and obey the word and follow God. We want to help you follow Jesus as we follow Jesus. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you felt completely overwhelmed? You try to keep your head above water and yet the waves keep crashing over you? The strong currents pulling you under and eventually the strength is gone. I'm not sure why this is, but it seems that in the Christian life, distresses and troubles come in batches. Perhaps they, they don't get spaced out in proportion because our powers could manage them. So God brings them all at once. And often circumstances develop to the point where we can't see any way out. We're, we feel, feel stuck we're drowning and you wonder, is this pounding really necessary? And friends, it was necessary for Jonah. The waves crash over him, sinks him to the bottom. See, resentment towards God and towards Nineveh had built a hard crust around Jonah's heart and it's going to take a tremendous amount of power to break this stronghold of his heart. Jonah seems determined to run, to run from God. Sometimes the very best thing that can happen to us is the very thing we fear the most. For the simple reason that it, it strips away our self-reliance and it humbles us and removes from us every other hope that can save us. And God brings us to this point so that we'll finally trust him. God will remove every other support that we've built up so that we will run to him in prayer. See, Jonah says in verse 3, you cast me into the deep. See, Jonah knew that there was divine justice and that he deserved it. Although the, the mariners, we learn in, in chapter 1, are the ones that actually jettisoned him overboard, Jonah knows, he recognizes, that it was God who was the ultimate mastermind of the action. 
And Jonah's expressing his feeling of being in the deepest part of the ocean, as far removed from the world of human interaction as possibly to conceive. Any help or hope was completely out of reach for him. Spiritual decline for us seems to happen slowly. So slowly it's hard to notice. Worship becomes something that you do when you feel like it. Prayer becomes repetitive or even non-existent. The Lord's table, communion, becomes something of a habit. Hearing the word preached becomes dull. And soon, then your Christian life begins to run on autopilot. And you begin to live off of fumes of times in the past when you were walking with the Lord. You're no longer engaged with God. You just exist. But then God calls you out of the slumber and you have a choice to make. Am I going to follow God or follow myself? And it's what we read in the book of Jonah. Jonah chose to follow himself. And God goes to great lengths to get his attention. He's tossed overboard. Verse 4, he says, I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. He realizes that he stands condemned and permanently barred for his sin and rebellion. There's no possible way for those gates to open himself. He can't see any way out. All by himself now, Jonah seems, and and rightly so, locked in a prison. Uh, His real prison was the unbelief and resentment toward God in which he now suffers in the darkness. I thought about this week. It would be a terrible thing to fall overboard and be left behind when the sea is just calm. How much worse to be thrown into a raging storm with 20 and 30 foot waves and feeling yourself being sucked so deep, you, you know you're done. And if that's not enough, as you struggle toward the air, you, you hit a mass of seaweed that tangles around you in your head and, you, and it pulls you back down. It's a terrifying scene here. This would most definitely feel like a prison. We couldn't let you out. And God brought these circumstances into Jonah's life to deliver him. And he does the same to us. Brings about circumstances so that we'll cry out to him. You know, as a child, we hear this a lot. I grew up in church, so you hear this story a lot, right? It comes different, different vantage points. You picture differently. But as a child, I grew up thinking that right after Jonah was tossed overboard, that the fish came right away and scooped him up. That's kind of how I pictured it in my mind as a kid. But as I read this psalm over and over and over this week, I don't believe that any longer. Jonah sank. Jonah struggled in the water for some time. And he was consumed by the seaweeds and the deep of the water washing over him. He was drowning. And then the fish was sent by God to rescue him. And what we read in verses 2 through 9 is, is after he's inside the fish or even after reflecting what, what transpired at this time. He says in verse 4 again, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. When, when Jonah looked at himself, he despaired because he only knew that he deserved to be banished. But he dared believe that God would save him and he looked there and had hope. Looking here in verse 4 is a way of describing faith. 
The analogy goes back to an occasion when God's people were afflicted by a, by a snake during the years in the desert. And with people all over the camp writhing in pain from snake bites and losing strength, the Israelites asked Moses to go to God to pray. And God told Moses to make a bronze snake and put it on a pole. And then he gave this promise. Everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. And Jesus uses this story in in Numbers 21 of Moses. He uses it in John 3 to help us understand what faith is. In John 3, 14. and, And Moses, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And using this picture, Jesus makes it clear that faith involves believing that God delivers us and trusting in him to do this for us. Faith is exercised by looking away from yourself and your failure and getting your eyes fixed on the grace and mercy that flows from Jesus Christ crucified for you. And friends, God is rich in grace and God is a big spender. And Jonah is employing the same thing here in this psalm. He he once had faith when he was in Israel serving the Lord as a prophet. Now he employs faith as he sits inside this great fish. Having faith isn't just a a one-time event. It's It's the bond of living, of a living union with Jesus Christ in which you love and trust and follow him. And that means faith will always be in conflict with doubt and unbelief. See, Jonah here needed to believe. He needed to trust in God. And God saves us because we can't save ourselves. God saved Jonah because he couldn't save himself. He sent the fish because Jonah had no other hope. And what Jonah needed was not an empty belief, but a deliverance. Not a creed, but a savior. He needed a rescue. And God pursued him to the uttermost and brought him back. And friends, God will go to any length to bring us into the center of his will, no matter what price it may be, either to ourselves or to himself. And our God is merciful and gracious in the pursuit of sinners. But God is also fierce. And sometimes the process of coming back to him is risky. C.S. Lewis paints a beautiful picture of the intensity of God's love for his children in the line, the witch, and the wardrobe. If you remember the story, the children, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, stumble into the wardrobe and come upon the land of Narnia where it's been cursed by the white witch. And it's always winter and never Christmas. And while they're there, they meet the beavers and they hear about this long-promised savior king, Aslan. And after talking more and more, they find out that he's a lion. Here's what they say. Ooh, Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king. Following God is never safe. That's what Jonah is learning. God isn't safe, friends. But he's good. Very good. Would you want to follow a God who was always safe, but seldom good? 
What we find here in these first six verses of chapter two is a merciful wrath towards a foolish rebellion in God's children. God is good and God pursues his people and he rescues them. And second, we see that, a gracious salvation. Look at the second half of verse six. It says, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Why does Jonah look to the temple here again? Jonah knew that it was over the mercy seat of the temple that God promised to speak to us. The mercy seat was a slab of gold over the top of the Ark of the Covenant in which resided the tablets of the Ten Commandments. And on the Day of Atonement, a priest sprinkled the blood of the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people on the mercy seat. And for Jonah, the only way to see mercy was for a sacrifice to come. Blood must be spilt and God must be satisfied in that. And it's only when the death of another secures forgiveness that we can come to God. Not, not until centuries later would it be revealed that atonement could not be affected by the blood of bulls or goats, but only by a once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's what we looked at on Friday, on Good Friday. It's all pure grace. And we can sing Amazing Grace. We did earlier. And we can give just lip service to the idea. But has that grace profoundly changed you? God's grace becomes a amazing and endlessly consoling and incredibly beautiful and spiritually humbling only when we fully believe and grasp and remind ourselves that we deserve hell. That we're completely incapable of saving ourselves. That we are wicked to the core. And yet God pursued us and saved us at infinite cost to himself. Do you know why we have a reason to sing? Because you and I couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't pull ourselves up from our bootstraps. We couldn't satisfy a holy God on our own. We needed a rescue. Our lives are like Jonah, deep in the pit. We don't always find grace at the high point of our lives, friends, but in the valleys and the depths, sometimes at the very bottom. And no human heart will learn its sinfulness by simply towing, being told they're sinful. It has to be shown to them. And often it comes in brutal experiences. See, Jonah needed to feel and experience the grace of God towards himself before he would be a suitable minister of that same grace to the people of Nineveh. And God had already pursued him in Israel and Jonah denied his grace. God pursued him on the boat and Jonah denied him. Imagine Jonah being rudely awakened by the sea captain in chapter one and and to call out to his God and he denies that. Jonah wouldn't be shaken out of his wicked wicked and and evil rebellion. And God pursues him when, when the lots were cast. But Jonah denies it even then. And step by step, God was calling out to Jonah and he ignores God. And now Jonah struggles for his life from the pit of the water. And God again pursues him. And Jonah relents. He had to be shown that he was sinful. 
And if grace does not make us like Christ in his compassion for men and women and young people who have never heard the gospel, then we truly haven't understood the grace of God. You might have knowledge. You might be able to spout off great theological terms. But if grace hasn't reached into your heart and your head and your life, then it's all worthless. And it seems this has affected Jonah, that he's changed his mind for now. A repentant and humbled and thankful Jonah made the conclusion there in verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. This verse has stumped commentators for years, but here's how I interpret it. Those who cling to worthless idols will eventually abandon their loyalty to them. The idols in our lives won't satisfy us. They won't bring refreshment and peace and joy. It'll always leave us longing for more. They will disappoint. Jonah seems to have found this out. Then he ends his prayer in verse 9. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And having now Jonah experienced God's power to save his own life from the very jaws of death itself, Jonah shares his gratitude and promises to fulfill his vows to the Lord. And, and Jonah exclaims, salvation belongs to the Lord. Charles Spurgeon said, Jonah learned the sentence of good theology in a strange college. He learned it in the whale's belly at the bottom of the mountains with the weeds wrapped about his head when he supposed that the earth with her bars was about him forever. Most of the grand truths of God have to be learned by trouble. They must be burned into us with the hot iron of affliction, otherwise we shall not truly receive them. It is true in my life, friends. It's true in Jonas. He learns salvation belongs to God alone. And to no one else. If you're here this morning and you're saved, it is completely because of God. You didn't earn it. You didn't work for it. God alone gave salvation and he alone deserves glory. Well, he ends the chapter here in verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So what does Jonah 2 have to do with Jesus? Today's Easter, Resurrection Sunday, where we celebrate and remember what Christ has done, that Christ rose from the grave. And usually on Easter, we would spend some time in a New Testament passage about the resurrection. Now Jesus quotes this passage here when talking about the hard-hearted uh, scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 12 and Luke 11. In Matthew's passage, it says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. See, jo Jesus makes the connection of himself to Jonah. And on the cross, Jesus restates the suffering of Jonah, but to an infinitely greater degree. See, Jonah went into the depths of the sea in order to save the mariners, but Jesus went to the very depths of death and separation from God, hell itself, in order to save Jonah, to save us. 
Jonah is crushed under the weight of waves and billows of God's waters, but Jesus was buried under the waves and billows of God's wrath due our sin. The expression of grief voiced by the strained human psalm of Jonah finds its ultimate echo in Christ's cry from the cross. In Mark's gospel, he writes, And when the sixth hour came, there was a darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemes sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus underwent an abandonment that supersedes that of Jonah. He was abandoned not for his own sins and rebellion like Jonah, but for ours. Jesus died for the sake of sinful creatures whom he came to redeem. Jesus bore God's wrath due our sin on the cross. Jesus knew this was coming in the Garden of Gethsemane. As Jesus was preparing for this ordeal, he said to his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Jesus knew what was coming when he was praying. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And the cup, the cup is God's wrath against sin. Why didn't Jesus want to take the cup? Because taking the cup meant being utterly forsaken by God. The cup meant Jesus would be cast overboard to sink and to be driven away from the sight of God. Jonah said he was in Sheol and driven from God's sight and Jesus was forsaken by God when our sin was placed on him. Jonah entered his watery grave but he didn't, he didn't remain there. The, the fish swallowed him up and spit him out to the ground. And when Jesus died, he was laid in the tomb. But Jesus didn't remain there. Now Jesus was raised from the dead, leaving the tomb, appearing to many witnesses before ascending to the Father. And just like Jonah was spit from the whale into the ground to continue his mission of mercy to the lost Ninevites, so Jesus was spit from the tomb on that Sunday to conquer death. The fish couldn't hold Jonah any longer. God spoke to the fish to set him free. And the tomb, the symbol of death and finality, it couldn't hold Jesus anymore. And he burst forth that Sunday morning. And he has risen. Amen? This is the best news in the world, friends. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, I want you to know you're, you're glad, you're, you're welcome, we're glad you're here, you can come anytime. But if you're not trusted in Christ, then you don't have any confidence of life after death. Today on Easter, you can live in the reality of the resurrection if you would turn from your life of sinful dependence on yourself and wholly trust in Jesus Christ alone. Jonah believed he could continue to run from God and that God would give up, but God pursued him. He pursued him to the uttermost. Right now, friend, God's law requires that you die for your sin. Death is the penalty for sin. Death is the agonizing judgment, a curse from God, an enemy that separates those who die in sin from God forever. And that's the bad news. But the good news 
is that Jesus lived the perfectly obedient life to God that you couldn't live. That's how he became our righteousness. That Jesus died and suffered God's wrath and judgment in our place on the cross. That's how he takes away our sin and our guilt. And three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead to prove he had accepted Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. And that's what today is all about. And now the Father calls everyone to repent. To repent of their sins and to trust in Jesus as their God and Savior in order to be resurrected from the dead. Forgiven of sin. Made alive again through faith to live eternally with God forever. This is the good news of Easter. That's the point of Easter. That's the point of this day. This is why we exist as a church. To preach this gospel. And the best news is all who trust in Jesus even if they die, will live again in the powers of resurrection. Praise be to Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we can gather together as the church and we can celebrate again of what you have done for us. We thank you, Father, for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because of his resurrection, we are neither afraid to die or to live in this world. We are hope-filled children of the almighty God. We are no longer enslaved to our sins, but we're wrapped in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we are less pitied than anybody and more grateful than everybody. We thank you that today we can remember that everything sad will come untrue and that all things broken will be become new. And we acknowledge this morning because of your resurrection that you are already reigning as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But we pray for those in our midst this morning that are seated here and are watching online that do not recognize you as Lord. May you use us to give them this blessed hope that we live in every day of every year in you, that they would have faith in you. May you use us for your own glory, we pray. And we pray this all in Jesus' resurrected and reigning name. Amen.